righty, welcome back to another episode of Finding Peak. So grateful that you continue to join us and participate in this with us. I hope that we are continuing to teach, educate, or otherwise about this industry, about this space, its complexities, its simplicities, its beauty, its frustrations, everything in between. All of the things. All of the things. All of the things. Um, for me personally, just I just love coming to do these things, yeah. especially with you guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is great. Uh, I think a few times I've missed title giving, but again, Jason Friesma, Chief Clinical Officer, Peaks Recovery, Chief Operating Officer, Clint Nicholson, everybody, and uh, Chief Executive Officer, uh, Brandon Burns, just in case anybody's joining us for the first time. Um, and welcome back for everybody else. So uh, we have a blog on our website uh, called Psychological and Emotional Manipulation, and it gets a lot of people visiting that particular page. And so we just kind of wanted to highlight, you know, what that uh, means in relationship uh, to, I think, two different things, right? There's two ways, I think, to look at psychological and emotional manipulation from an addiction treatment space. One, those things can cause um, shame, guilt, emotional feelings that might drive us towards maybe using drugs and alcohol one day to, you know, cope with those experiences. Also, uh, for family systems out there, when we're engaged with the, an individual who is suffering from an addiction, um, we experience psychological and emotional uh, manipulation, abuse, and so forth. And so I think uh, just to kick this off, I think let's start with um, you know, maybe the cause and effect relationship of it. When we experience psychological and emotional manipulation over time, can uh, have us experiencing guilt, shame, and so forth. Um, and then we end up turning to drugs and alcohol maybe to uh, cope with that. Uh, I know we talk a lot about uh, the latter part of the topic about you know, clients and uh, patients themselves manipulating family systems, but um, you know, let's talk about it maybe through the client lens and your experiences as clinicians and what that's like um, for our patient demographic to experience those things and resulting from that you know, moving towards drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism. So I don't think there's a question in there. Not but, yet. I'm, I'm waiting. But I'm, and Clint's answering first. Yeah. But so I feel yeah. like it's nestled in there. You're in a clinical <laughs> session and you're talking with individuals. Mm -hmm. What is it that comes up often in your experiences uh, in regards to that manipulation that they experience for which they are stating, you know, these are reasons that I'm you know, participating in, you know, drugs and alcohol as yeah. a coping mechanism. I mean, it, the first thing that comes to my mind with that question is certainly working um, with some of our younger adult population and, um, and sometimes there are parents out there that can be a little bit manipulative with their adult children. And sometimes, um, Sometimes that manipulation can occur with good intention, like trying to get somebody to do uh, the right thing. And I guess, uh, you know, overall, I, I look at manipulation to me is trying to change somebody's behavior uh, without kind of overtly stating your intention and trying to maneuver situations um, in ways that, well, are manipulative. And actually, I was just during our family meeting um, recently. Uh, I was talking to the families about dishonesty, and of course, every family on the Zoom meeting was like, "Yeah, it's it's awful," and like it was so horrible. And then I asked families, "In what ways have you been dishonest?" Um, 
with your loved one who's here at Peaks. And, you know, the call went a little quiet for a second. And then I kind of described how um, even, as, even as loving as it may be, but not, not speaking the truth to your loved one and trying to change their behavior through maybe just hiding things or withholding money or, or um, withholding love uh, or attention as a way to try to change somebody's behavior um, is a way to be manipulative. And regardless of what the intention is, it still can kind of come across and be perceived as manipulation. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Nicholson. <clears throat> I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is the, um, is like you said, it, or we're kind of alluding to this sort of um, push of manipulation to motivate either trauma or guilt or shame and then um, utilizing substances as a coping mechanism or a primary coping mechanism. I think that we are surrounded by manipulation of sorts at all times, right? Whether it's, uh, I think that it, manipulation, we just assume that it's this negative thing, but we're being manipulated by advertisement, we're being manipulated by social media, we're being manipulated by um, peers. It's all around us, you know? Like it, and it's this idea of, um, trying to, again, change behavior or promote behavior um, in a certain direction. And I think there, there comes a point where there is a, uh, from the addict's perspective, where there is a loss of self and then a loss of control. And one of the easiest ways to gain back control, particularly emotionally, is through substances. They're effective, they're predictable, and they are, um, accessible, unfortunately. So I, that's when I think about manipulation as far as driving or motivating substance use, that's what I come back to. And then once you're in that substance use world, when you're in the realm uh, and sort of culture of substance use, I think the manipulation just gets even greater. There's a, there's a whole, it's almost exponential once you're in there because you're in a, you're in a, a group of people and part of a population that is 100% in survival mode. And so, um, and you do anything you can to survive. Manipulation is probably uh, a baseline almost to a certain degree. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of where my mind goes. It's, I think it's a, an excellent point because it is true that we think about it in terms of that negative approach, right? Because there are, you know, certainly in appreciating and understanding phone calls that we get, you know, coming into, you know, peaks recovery from family members. It's like, look, if I tell them they're not getting their cell phone when they go to treatment, they're not coming. And that doesn't matter what treatment center is involved with that. They're just not coming. Right. And so, you know, at times there's this sort of good cop, bad cop thing that starts happening. And if we had to couch it in terms of, you know, uh, positive terms, it would be a harm reduction principle, right? The individual's life is out of control, and I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna manipulate in this sense to bring them into uh, care, but the value proposition will be they'll be better off than they were uh, to begin with. But, you know, at the same time, in a family system that's, you know, maybe negotiating that even with the best of intentions, um, and the person's life is spiraling out of control at the same time, uh, we're sort of, slowly but surely, if not rapidly, losing trust, right, within the family system. And that's a delicate line. And 
I appreciate it, Clings. I didn't think we were going to go in this direction of like the, the positive aspect about it, but now it just makes it all the more challenging, it feels like, from that family perspective. And um, because it does feel that there are times in which it has like a value proposition uh, in that regard. But at the same time, I think in, you know, in relationship to you know, family systems and so forth, um, not just so we don't get off topic about it, but what is it about those, those you know, going back maybe to the family phone call that you had, Jason, about mm -hmm. those experiences, you know, what were families able to get honest about as examples of dishonesty um, on their side of things? <clears throat> well, I think, I, th I find that manipulation and, and particularly um, the use of shame as a, as a motivator uh, to get people to go to treatment or to try to get people to change um, is the one that I, I think families were able to take the most responsibility for. Like, um, and, and, you know, as Brene Brown talks about, like shame is a great motivator in the short term. Um, but it doesn't create long-term and systemic change. Like it can, you know, you can call somebody a name or, or uh, tell them they're worthless or whatever. As a, you know, you're being worthless. I need you to, you know, how you would find worth basically would be to get your life together and 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 do this. And that might provide provide a little spark to get somebody moving in in a proper direction. Um, but it is actually damaging, obviously, significantly. And um, and then, you know, the other big one that I was thinking about as well as we were talking is um, gaslighting. Like that, that seems like, I don't know, kind of a term that gets used a lot lately. Um, but, I, but certainly, you know, and that's, that's where um, somebody blames their own behavior on another person. Like, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't yell at you if you would come home on time or I wouldn't have all this stress or I wouldn't have my heart problem if you would get your life together um, or whatever. And, and that can, like, again, there's a nuance there. Like, some of that can be real, and there's, there's a genuine way to share, like, hey, the, your behavior is affecting me in this way. But there's a manipulative way around saying, like, I'm, I'm not going to take responsibility for how I'm speaking to you. Um, this is your fault. You brought this on to yourself, basically. Yeah, manipulation is very much of one, like a, a single direction street, right? It's a one-way street. It's, it's much more about um, there isn't like a reciprocation of ownership in the, in the moment. And so it's, um, it becomes just blame, basically. Yeah. And once you've started to blame somebody for the um, devastation that is your life or the chaos that's in your life and you don't take any ownership of it, shame is the result and mm -hmm. then once you're in shame again i mean it, like jason said there's that maybe initial motivating factor but then the shame actually becomes the motivation to continue the cycle because you start to feel worthless you start to feel like you you don't have any power you start to feel like i'm the reason why everything is wrong you actually start to believe and own these things and that's again when you especially if you're doing that in the context of somebody who has substance use once you start to feel out of control, you go back to what you know. And again, substances are really great at that. Like mm -hmm. they're very predictable and they give you a sense of control. So yeah, short term, you may see some movement or nudge in the right direction. Again, knowing that mo manipulation is really about motivating change and behavior. Um, but in the long term, what you've done is in those moments is actually just sort of reinforce a cycle that 
you're actually trying to break. Yeah. So. And <clears throat> thinking about um, the word gaslighting in that regard in reference to uh, or just creating some an additional example about it because you know I always tell I, I think the solution here becomes like positive boundary setting right mm -hmm. yeah and, and so we'll we'll slide into that you know within this as the solution but you know I, I hear a lot from families as well too that okay I went to hold a boundary and I went to talk to my loved one and then they turned around and said to me well if you don't give me that hundred dollars then I can't pay rent or I don't get that hundred dollars and then I'm gonna be on the drugs you know or on the streets and you know um, unfortunately, at times within this industry, you know, potentially prostituting myself and all that sort of stuff that uh, we know happens, um, you know, to individuals, is that kind of a gaslighting oh, effect? Ab absolutely. You know, of yeah. Like and, and, and that's one that I've seen a lot of, like I've certainly talked to parents who have, you know, gone to the heroin dealer and paid, paid for the drugs yeah. themselves or, yeah. or definitely pay rent every month even though all these other behaviors are going on. Um, and then are frustrated because their boundaries of like, I, I, my boundaries that they'll quit using. Well, that boundaries are something you set to protect yourself. It isn't to change another person's behavior, right? And even that, you know, that's kind of weaponizing boundaries. If it's like, I'm going to set a boundary to get Clinton to change. My boundary is just that, like, if, if this behavior of Clinton's continues, um, this is what I'm going to do as a result of that to make myself safe again. That's what a boundary is. That other stuff is just, it, it's aggravation, and it's, it's disguised as a boundary. It, it probably is its own manipulation, but I don't think that's in the, in the blog. But um. I mean, I think you slip into the realm of manipulation, right? And then maybe that's when we start to talk about the other side of that, like the family as um, sort of maybe more of a victim or the recipient of that of those sort of manipulative behaviors. And um, again, I think for me, it's when I, when I think of manipulation from the, the part of an addict, I just see somebody in survival mode. You know, that's all they're doing is surviving. And yeah. all they want is to feel, is, is to gain control back. And again, the way they know how to do that is to continue using. And I think that's on a psychological level and on a physiological level. Um, uh, and again, there's, you can't, there's nothing you can really do as a family member to change that. They have to make the change. And so we get into the, but you get into the pattern of I'm going to set these, what I feel are boundaries in order to try to motivate changes in behavior. But really what you've done is just continued again, that cycle of manipulation. And it becomes uh, very quickly, at, that's when it's a two-way street because it's just manipulation exchange at that point. But establishing those healthy boundaries like Jason was talking about, that's actually how you break the cycle. And it becomes about protection, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than survival, it's about safety, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that that's um, one way to frame it for families that actually gives them a sense of power back. And that's, that's how you start to regain control and sort of mitigate the chaos. Because right. it is, it, the, the, that boundary discussion actually creates a huge barrier to relationship. Whereas if my boundaries, I'm not giving you any money if you're using, and that's just my boundary, right. and then your uh, son or daughter calls and is like, if you don't give me 100 bucks, I'm going to get kicked out of my place, a, a well-established boundary gets to say, that sounds really hard and scary. Yeah. What are you going to do? Because I'm holding, you know, I'm not handing you the money. Right. But like you can, 
like the boundaries already set and I'm not here to change, I'm not here to now stop your addiction. Right. I'm here to say, uh, I'm emotionally here for you, but I'm not right. financially here for you right. because uh, the finances are just going to the dope dealer. Right. Or the response, when I think a typical response would be, well, I'll do it this time, but yeah. you have to do this right. for me. Yeah. Right, right. So, oh yeah. yeah. There's that sort you of You quit bartering. and I'll do yeah. it, yeah. Right, which is yeah. again, just another, like a, it's a more cordial manipulation, mm -hmm. I guess, yeah. and when it feels better, like you're starting to, like if I do this and, and there's this exchange, then we're starting to get control again. The chaos is starting to, to sort of dissipate, but no, it's, just a, it's just an exchange. You right. know, you're just continuing the cycle. So. Right, so there's a, there's, a, there's a delicacy to it there. So how, you know, and you're the, uh, you're the only uh, father figure, at least in this room with us right <laughs> okay. now. So yeah. Yeah. Um, the biggest beard it, it, <laughs> so, and the biggest Brad beard in yeah. this room. Yeah. It's getting cold here in Colorado. So this is what right. we do. It grows exponentially. Um, but really in regards to, uh, you know, being a father, you know, um, it, I can imagine it's extraordinary challenging to, you know, hold these boundaries. And fortunately, you know, uh, knowing your family, of course, that's not the space you're in. But, you know, I always share with families, and I think we do, that when you go to set these boundaries for your own emotional safety, what you're going to hear back, well, then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to live on the streets, or I'm going to be in the trap house, and all these sort of things, that immediately pulls on the motherly and fatherly heartstrings. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's you know, so difficult for people to conceptualize that the boundary isn't actually severing those strings, yeah. and that that emotional state still exists. And you know, maybe from that parental lens, you know, um, you know, I can imagine just thinking about it. You know, for you even with with your kids, how difficult that would be to set those boundaries. You know, for your own emotional safety, and yeah. maybe just um, in that intimate sort of way, walk family systems through. You know, from that parental lens, that challenge and what that might be like. You know, for you if you're in the same, because it's easier. Sometimes easy to give advice. It's another one to like kind of internalize it as if it were going to take place in our own. Yeah. Life. And to, to your point, I haven't been in the situation where one of my kids is saying, I need 100 bucks or I'm homeless. Um, but what is clear is, like, um, as a parent, like, my kids struggle sometimes with anything. And the easiest thing to do would go to be to go fix it. Um, but, but that doesn't teach anything. It doesn't build resilience. And... And so always my strategy is, or what I'm always thinking is what's most important is my relationship with my kids. And, and, um, and that they're calling me or talking to me about this problem um, kind of puts us on the same team and the problem is over here and how do we navigate this? And this problem is not my problem. Like I get to have that boundary um, for the most part, but, like I, but how, do we, how do we wanna navigate that? Because don't get me wrong and you know, if, if um, if my daughter calls from college and is having a hard time, the, my instinct is to go rescue her <laughs> or go solve the problem. First instinct, for sure, immediately. Um, so it feels, it feels um, against my instinct to just sit and talk to her and allow her to solve her own problem, even if it's hard. Um, but then, you know, that grows her resilience and her ability to kind of, uh, um, well, grow and learn. And, and I don't want to be rescuing her when she's 30. So I probably should help her yeah. engage life at 18. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, feedback on it? I know it was, I know <laughs> yeah, it was largely directed yeah. at him, but. Share yeah, your expertise on that. My expertise as a, as a parent, yeah. yeah. I have a dog and two cats. So in uh, Hank. Yeah, Hank, my dog, if you were to come to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, getting some money, I can't get bones. You know, I don't know. Um, I think about the, uh, that when you talk about that, uh, the idea of severing the connection, that, that these boundaries feel like you're severing, but really what severs the connection uh, between family and uh, between family members is actually the back and forth between manipulation. That's mm -hmm. what, it's like you're constantly sawing that connection. Every time you go back and forth with those manipulations, you're actually making it um, more and more tenuous. And to, to establish these solid boundaries is the first way to heal that. Mm -hmm. So um, I think from a visual perspective, it's one way to think about it, but that's really what will cause those that eventual sort of snap or severing of the connection between family members is the back and forth mm -hmm. because you lose you lose being genuine and authentic with one another and you don't everything becomes about one upping the other person rather than just stopping and like Jason said being there and listening to them mm -hmm. you know and not trying to solve the problem but just help them understand the problem um, yeah that's kind of that's my feedback. And, I, and I'm sure there are families that are suffering and that that sounds very Pollyanna-ish. Absolutely. Like very much like, oh, that's great, Jason, but like your kid's not about to die. And that's it's true. true. Um, and I want to acknowledge that. Um, the stakes are higher uh, right. oftentimes when dealing with substance abuse, but I don't think... Um, I don't think severing the, severing the relationship, I think, is the actual enemy in all of this. Absolutely. Um, and I do think there are times to lean into the, like if, you know, like if you have a lot of uh, cachet, if you will, in the emotional bank account with your kids, then you can lean in and push at times, I think. Uh, and then there are other times that you have to just support from a distance and... Yeah. And and let your loved one know that there's always a warm meal and and a listening ear, and yeah. that's about it. And we cash. Yeah. And and we've <laughs> talked about boundaries, and because it seemingly comes back to boundaries uh, a lot on this show, um, because they are so effective when they are understood. And the, the powerful thing that you know I think we've lightly said it in past episodes, but the powerful thing about a boundary is a boundary is not a line in the sand to direct or change the course of someone's behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. It is back to, I am safe in this moment. So, you know, I shared with a mom a while ago, I said, what is it like to get a phone call from your loved one? Well, I think it's the last phone call. I think it's somebody on the other line gonna tell me he's dead, uh, that he got in a, a car accident and killed somebody because of his drinking and so forth. And I, you know, I said to her, like, that does not sound safe. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine what it's like to pick up a phone, like if my loved one called, and to have that energy. We want to answer that phone when it's loving, it's positive, they're sharing in their goals, inspirations, or maybe even sharing in negative features that are taking place in their lives that you know, we can support and encourage, but we can't be in sort of that 911 call space at any given time. And so you know, maybe just kind of carrying this episode out again, how can we um, convey to, uh, individuals, family systems, and also as well, too, I, I think if anything, right, start talking to, you know, before your, you know, what, what is it in America? It's uh, to 22 million people suffering from mental health and addiction. That's, mm -hmm. you know, 330 million Americans or something like that. So, you know, just shy of 10% of our population is going through this at any given time. And, you know, we've seen 
a, a variety of family systems coming into Peaks Recovery Centers that come from all walks of life. This happens to all walks of life. You know, at some point, I think, you know, we can start setting emotional boundaries and safety early on before we even know there's an addiction taking place, before we get into that, you know, risky behavior of sort of drawing the line in the sand um, in that regard. So, you know, how can we support families, I guess, on the, you know, before we uh, head out here in regards to, again, just reminding what those boundaries are, how to reinforce them, and how to have earlier discussions um, about their own emotional safety before it gets to that moment where we might be gaslighting or sliding into man uh, manipulative behaviors. Well, to, the, to that example you just gave, um, as horrific as that is, and who would want to just be on edge and that every phone call might mean that this is the one? Um, to your point, that is, that is a tough way to live. And, and honestly, the first boundary I thought of is so practical and simple, but it would be to you know, put your phone in a different room when you go to bed and at least create eight hours of a buffer and just say, if, if a call comes at 2 a.m., there probably isn't really much I can do anyway. And I, and I know that that can sound so cold and callous, but like boundaries, you, you can't live like you're an ER doc 24-7, 365, like I need to be ready to jump at a moment's note. Like that's not a practical solution and the only way is probably some sort of physical boundary like that. Um, where that, that's how that's going to go. That's, and, and I know, so conceptually, that's what the boundary is, is saying this is, I need to create this safe space for me. Um, or I'm not going to take calls that aren't in my contact list, or I'm not going to let calls ring through that aren't on that, or whatever, whatever it is that, that you may need um, to whatever degree feels right. And, and boundaries are meant to also be fluid. Like there might be a season. You might need to take a month and just turn your phone off at night and then see where you are and reevaluate. Maybe that's, maybe that felt better. Or maybe that felt worse. I don't know, but, but learning that, that taking care of yourself is actually an important part of, of establishing your own mental health and your own ability to be stable. Cause the fact is when that call comes, if, if you do get the call from your loved one, like you're probably going to need some energy, some emotional, uh, you're, you're going to need some reserves in the bank anyway. To, to offer that support if that call comes, so. I mean, I love that you had like a really pragmatic answer, so that's. <laughs> I know, so can you give us more of a language. feeler one, yeah. Yeah. Quentin, one? since can we're switching roles on this maybe? I, I mean, gosh, I'll, I'll give it the old college try here. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think it's about, boundaries are a lot of times about resilience in general, right? So I think that if you're trying, if you're, we're talking about like before this even happens, like what are some of the things that we can do to help build, uh, to help build boundaries within a, a family system, regardless of if there are issues going on. Uh, I think that resilience and um, being a a family that comes together to um, communicate about problems and not actually necessarily try to solve them. You know, I think that we. Parents in general, and this has been my experience as a child, so, okay. particularly yeah. fathers, yeah, at least my father, it, there's this, this impulse is to solve the problem. You know, kid says, I have a problem. Well, what are you going to do about it, right? Rather than just sitting there and saying, all right, you have a problem. Let's sit with the problem for a while. You know, what does it feel like to have a problem? And what does it feel like to resolve and just be in, 
slowly but surely feel, feel, work feel. through. I know. I said I, feel it's like amazing. Too, way too many times. Yeah. yeah. I'm good for the year. <laughs> Cashed um, it all in. Yeah, gosh, uh, right. I've just been waiting. So, yeah. Uh, um, but actually sitting with that and, and getting used to being in discomfort, right? Uh, I think that we, when we try to run away from discomfort is when we get into problems. You know, when we try to protect ourselves from it and we try to avoid it and we try to problem solve our ways out of it, yeah, I think we're going in the wrong direction. You know, it's okay for things to not be okay. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and being able to sit in that space as a family, I think if, if you can do that as a family system, um, I, I think you've got a, a pretty significant leg up. And I think that all of the members of the family at that point recognize that um, at least have the beginning tools to be able to establish clear boundaries and healthy boundaries moving forward. Yeah, so. absolutely. And I, and I think in, in, in going out here, um, and I appreciate that. That was yeah, excellent. Pragmatic feels, we switched. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, it'll never happen up again. Is down. Yeah, You'll never see that again, viewers. That was, that was a freaky Friday. There was, yeah. there was a lot of vulnerability in this room, and I could feel it. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. Just in its, in a, and, I, and I think in going out here as well, uh, you know, the thing that comes to my mind about this is that your loved one is suffering. There is no doubt about that. And yeah. whatever they're going through, mental health, primary, substance use disorder, they are suffering. And I think the goal of a boundary is to not be suffering at the same level and to provide some space in that regard so that um, you, know, you can still get, uh, as wild as it may feel, or me saying it, a good night's sleep while that's happening in the background because your life matters just as much as your loved one's uh, life in that regard. So boundaries is to take care of self. Um, and support the individual in a loving way. And so thanks again for being here on this episode uh, today at Finding Peaks. I got a special exciting guest uh, coming up in a few weeks here, Joanna Conti with uh, Vista Research, uh, president founder of Vista Research and Conquer Addiction. They are the nation's uh, largest outcome uh, data collection agency that exists in the country. And so um, uh, no more fluff about outcomes. We're going to talk about it specifically, um, what she's seeing on her end in that regard, what frustrations she's seen about treatment centers and their experiences in uh, regards to this. Um, but she's got a big heart. She's doing something really extraordinary in our industry. Um, it's been wonderful to have them um, uh, creating Peaks Recovery Center's uh, outcome data. So I'm really excited to bring Joanna on. Um, in the meantime, uh, send us your thoughts, ideas, questions, Finding Peaks at peaksrecovery.com. Uh, find us on the Facebook, the Instagram, uh, podcast, uh, the Gmails, all the fun, Spotify, there's another one for the podcast. Um, love you all. Thanks again, and uh, we'll see you next time.